when Siddhartha Gautama was a young boy of about six years old, he attended the annual spring plowing festival with his parents, who were the king and the queen at that time uh, in the part of the Himalayas, which is now Nepal, this area where he was born and grew up. On this particular day of the festival, young Siddhartha was seated quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, where he watched his father, uh, the other leaders of the community, the farmers, and all of the other working men in the area, all together plowing the earth up for this spring planting time. He was sitting there with a very connected, alert, clear, and deeply focused attention that a child can sometimes give to things and this particular child especially. He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. He was aware of the shimmers of heat coming up off the freshly turned and opened earth. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the man and the oxen. He was aware of the sun intermittently flashing and sparkling off the bronze harnesses and the horns of the oxen. And he felt and he heard what seemed like the senseless plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the sound of the cowbells rolling on and on and on. All of this amidst the harsh and the penetrating shouts of the men as they're working. He also clearly heard the beautiful singing of the birds in the tree above him and the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and as they packed and as they devoured all the swarming insects, the worms, the grubs, the broken bodies of the mice that were left by the men and the oxen as the earth was turned over. All of this very obvious hard laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, which was endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, the beauty of this spring festival day. This all entered very deeply and weighed heavily in this young boy's heart, in young Siddhartha's heart and in his mind, and in his body, as he sat there alone under the tree, experiencing all of it, and intuitively, in his young childlike way, 
reflecting on the scene that was going on around him. As he sat with a very connected, alert, clear, and focused attention, taking all of this in, he suddenly entered into a profound experience of deep concentration and insight. He entered into a profound experience of what we could call oneness. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was born out of this experience, this experience of non-separateness or non-duality with all that was taking place that day at the Spring Festival. Sorry, I totally forgot about this. Many years later, in his quest for liberation as a young man, and after six years of extremely austere practices that didn't bring him the freedom that he sought, he remembered this scene from his childhood. He remembered this scene and the profound experience that he'd had that day at the festival. And it's said that with this memory, he became filled with tremendous energy and a great sureness. And he resolved to, again, sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached complete, full understanding, until he reached true liberation. And fortunately for us, and for an untold number of people over these past 2,500 years, his resolve bore the fruit that he asked for. And so, as it was for Siddhartha Gautama, it is for us. In contrast to the newspaper article about the futile futile pursuit of happiness that Carol shared parts of with us last week, telling us uh, that what we think it is that will make us happy uh, is actually an illusion, and that in fact we don't have a clue as to what brings us happiness. And in conjunction with what Carol spoke about as our incredibly great good fortune to have teachings, to have a path of practice that is clearly, directly, and truly leading us towards happiness, it's by the strength of our own mindful attention and awareness that's 
fueled by great interest, energy. Taking the time to look deeply at our own experience of body, mind, heart. Taking the time to develop a concentrated clarity of awareness. It's through this that we're able to experience, to see, to know what's true, what's really true, to know the nature of things. And we may have had at least some small taste of this and know that, in fact, this is what brings the deepest ease, contentment. This is what actually brings happiness. This is what liberates. Out of his own experience and brilliance, the Buddha offered us our deepest and most expansive human possibility. Something that um, Saida Upandita says that I really like a lot and that I've been inspired about every time I hear it. He says, this practice is about becoming a real human being. Just that. This practice is about becoming a real human being. Our deepest and most expansive human possibility. Just that. The Buddha, out of his great brilliance of mind and compassionate heart, offered us the tools and the map, or we could say the necessary ingredients and the recipe that he himself discovered along the way of his own journey. It's a map, uh, a recipe, that I've come to trust implicitly, perfectly as I'm sure some of you have also. And there are a number of trails that are part of this whole network that the Buddha laid out on his map. A number of ingredients and seasonings that he lists in his recipes. But when I first uh, got here about a month ago, and was considering um, what I would like to talk with you all about, at least for part of the time that I'm here at the Forest Refuge, what stood out for me. And one of the things that I was most moved to share and explore with you, really based on my own journey along this path, based on my own cooking along, or maybe more accurately, being cooked, in the midst of this recipe. Um, What I was most moved to talk about was the very clear basic map, the very basic and necessary ingredients that the Buddha spoke about many, many times over his 45 years of teaching. The seven factors of enlightenment, which I have been talking about now over these last few weeks. 
If our goal in practice is to be liberated from suffering, to awaken from the sleep, the illusion, in our deluded relationship to samsara, we must carefully and wisely cultivate, develop, fulfill, and perfect the seven factors of enlightenment. These, we could say, are our tools for traversing the map. And at the same time, they're also the map itself. The map and the tools are intrinsic to each other. The recipe and the ingredients are inherent within each other. So with this evening's talk, we'll continue to touch into this map, these tools. This evening, touching into the ingredient of tranquility, the fifth factor of enlightenment, and concentration, the sixth factor. And so just a brief review of the factors that we've already looked into, beginning with mindfulness, the great mother of our practice, as I like to call it, or as the Buddha called it, the chief. (laughs) The chief because it's necessary and useful everywhere, all the time. The ground of our practice of awakening is attending carefully and wisely, attending mindfully to any object that has arisen in one of the four foundations or bases of mindfulness. These four bases covering every single aspect of our human experience in body, mind, and heart. as a factor of enlightenment, quickly following and very intimately connected with our mindful connection to an object comes the second factor, investigation or discernment of states of body, mind, and heart, which in turn perks up our interest, which in its turn fires up effort, and energy in a more ongoing way. And then the third factor of enlightenment is aroused, effort or energy. As we begin to see, to know how it is more clearly and, and more often through mindfulness and investigation, Our interest in seeing and knowing sustains and inspires the effort that's needed for practicing. And the energy begins to open up, begins to increase and flow more freely. And we begin to feel a kind of delight, maybe a gladness, joy, rapture as it's often called, piti. What I termed last week a lightness of being. And the fourth factor of enlightenment, 
sometimes called the happiness factor, is born. With this piti, uh, this joy, and the knowing of it, without any grasping, without attachment, without identification, in the moments of it happening, the body will eventually become quite tranquil. The subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with joy, rapture, gladness, piti, are actually removed as tranquility starts to seep in. They disappear. The disturbances disappear in the calm and in the quiet, in the serene pleasure, we could say, of tranquility. So tranquility, pasadi in Pali, the fifth factor of enlightenment has arisen. And with this there can be a feeling of composure, a kind of smoothness, quietness, a gentleness, and a stillness within our body and in the mind. As this enlightenment factor develops and deepens, we find that without making any special effort, the various states that have caused consciousness to be disturbed are quieted down. Disturbance or or distress in relation to the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant The distress that often accompanies our perceptions of things. The distress that's related to volitional or intentional formations are tranquilized. Now notice I said tranquilized. (laughs) They're not removed at this point, but they're tranquilized. mental and physical disturbances are kind of cooled out. They're inactive when this enlightenment factor is present in us. When this experience of deep calm is present. And I'm sure that many of you have felt this at times, at least for a few moments. There's very little, if any, discomfort Sometimes this enlightenment factor is called the heart of easefulness. And needless to say, it's um, a place that's very easy to get attached to. And also possibly confused by. Confusion being that, well, now this is it. I've, I've done it. This is, this is it. This is the way it's supposed to be all the time. This is the way I want it to be all the time. As soon as we cling on to this factor, 
as soon as we try to make it ours, mine, I want, it's gone. You've probably noticed that. The contraction of clinging, the contraction of I, mine, quite immediately shuts down tranquility, shuts down the heart of easefulness. And we're on the road of suffering again, of dukkha. In that moment, we've lost this particular tool. We've lost the map in this particular way. And we've mixed in uh, an old, probably quite overused, sour ingredient into the mix. What's most important at these times is to give a careful and wise attention. To call up the chief, as the Buddha calls it, call up mother mindfulness as quickly as we're able to. And just simply seeing and knowing that there's clinging, that there's identification, that there's a contraction in the heart, the mind, and maybe also in the body. Seeing and knowing what is. And knowing that tranquility is no longer present in us, knowing this too. And again, just simply knowing this without any layers of judgment, without evaluation. As a friend of mine so aptly says, seeing is relieving. Sometimes. It's been so interesting to me in my own practice when the factor of tranquility blossoms, which of course is very pleasant, if the mind, the heart, can just stop right there, not even go to I like, which very quickly and pretty inevitably is followed by I want, but just stop right there. Pleasant. The experience and noticing it's pleasant. The I like, I want are both subtle contractions, which are hard to see, hard to know. But if I can be fully present and at the same time mindfully absorbed in the experience of tranquility without self, without me, without I, then that connection, that purity, and that openness is what actually allows tranquility to be a factor of enlightenment. It's completely impersonal completely impersonal. It's a beautiful state, but it's not mine. 
it's not me. It's not who I am. It's totally impersonal. It's simply one of the tools for traversing the map that leads to liberation. One of the ingredients of the recipe for awakening. It's one of the places that makes up the map itself. And it comes about by various conditions coming together in that moment. It's impersonal. In the unfolding of the journey, tranquility creates a readiness for traversing the map to the next place. In a sense, it calls up the next ingredient needed for the mix. And as we've looked at with each of the other factors up to this point, we might ask, what is the nutriment? What, what is the act of nourishment, sustenance to be given to the heart, to the mind, for the arising, for the development, for the fulfillment, and eventually for the perfection of the enlightenment factor of tranquility? The foremost nutriment for the arising and development of tranquility, as it is for each of the other factors, is giving a careful and wise attention to tranquility itself, whenever it's in the body, whenever it's in the heart and the mind, recognizing it when it's present, acknowledging that it's there, and accepting that it's there, accepting its presence, seeing and knowing it clearly. That's the foremost nutriment for its arising and development. In contrast to this, not frequently giving a careful and wise attention to tranquility of the body and the mind is what the Buddha called the denourishment, meaning that lack of attention is what prevents the unarisen factor of tranquility from arising. And what prevents or what blocks the already arisen enlightenment factor of tranquility from developing. The denourishment, not giving attention to it. It's not about fixating on it. It's not about looking around for it, but just simply noticing it when it's present with the heart of acceptance, but with no clinging, no attachment. Very simple, but not so easy. The other conditions that nourish this factor, the Buddha tells us the condition of eating nourishing food, being in a congenial, comfortable climate, sitting in a pleasant and at the same time appropriate, stable posture 
for our practice. He talks about keeping to the middle, as it's sometimes called, meaning making an effort towards neutrality in relationship to the various phenomena that arises. And a, and a very important uh, nutriment for this factor and also for us in relationship to the way we live our life overall is about cultivating spiritual friends. Cultivating friends who are sustenance, friends who nourish this deep work of awakening. And specifically in relationship to the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the nutriment is associating with calm people. Not spending a lot of time with restless people. Avoiding violent people. And lastly, we're encouraged to make a resolve, to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the establishment of the enlightenment factor of tranquility. As a factor of enlightenment, we know when calm is present in us, when tranquility is in us. We know when it's absent from us. We know how the enlightenment factor of tranquility comes to arise and how its development comes about. When the body, the heart, and the mind are calm, are at ease, are tranquil, The mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. Calm, quiet is for the purpose of, we could say, and is actually the most immediate cause for for concentration to arise. We probably don't usually think about it that way. (laughs) But in this math, this is how it works. And this is the next enlightenment factor, concentration, the sixth factor, samadhi, that we'll explore this evening. At this point, the, the mind, the heart, is very strong. One aspect of my own experience of this factor is that it's actually felt and known as the strength or the power that's available in the mind and in the heart. This strength, this potential power is available because the mind is unified. All the scattered and wandering energies of the mind have kind of been gathered in. They've been gathered back. They've kind of been reined in, we could say, from the myriad distractions that have previously been so seductive. 
So we could say that the function of concentration is to eliminate distraction. The one taste of concentration, as it's sometimes called, the one taste is non-dispersion. Non-dispersion. Non-distraction is the individual essence that's actually peculiar to concentration, unique to it. And we experience it as a mind that doesn't waver, a mind that doesn't wander, a mind that stays. If you have a mind that um, waffles around a lot, that has a hard time lighting on an object for very long at all, if in your life you're the kind of person that has a difficult time making decisions, for instance, the kind of person that just weighs every single possibility before you can even get near making a decision. Well, maybe this. Well, no, maybe that. No. Well, well, maybe this. Oh, I just can't decide. Oh, I just don't know. That kind of mind. When the enlightenment factor of concentration begins to arise with some strength and some depth, though it can be a, quite a pleasant relief, it also... Um, might be unfamiliar enough that it might be somewhat disconcerting. It's important at this point to recognize, to acknowledge, and to accept that this is concentration. This is simply accessing non-distraction. And also gently bringing a careful and wise attention to it in itself with a very open heart. This factor, concentration, is potentially a great power at our disposal. The act of concentrating is the act of centering the act of placing consciousness on a single object, placing it calmly, placing it evenly, with no distractions, placing consciousness very precisely, unscattered on a single object, and then staying with the object, sinking into it, But as a factor of enlightenment, concentration just sinks deeply enough and long enough as it's appropriate to see and know what is clearly, what this object is clearly. And I think that's an important point. If this is to be part of the road to understanding, to insight, to liberation. Concentration just sinks deeply enough and long enough as it's appropriate 
to see and know the object clearly. The development of concentration happens quite naturally and quite inevitably, actually, through the moment-to-moment mindful attention that we're learning to give to our experiences of body, of mind, and of heart. The power of a focused mind, a mind that's non-distracted, a concentrated mind that brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again. And this is what happens. It re-stimulates itself again and again and again. So this continual re-accessing, we could say, of concentration just continues to strengthen itself. It's kind of like building up or developing the concentration muscle. And this, in turn, re-stimulates the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment of connecting. Connecting and discerning clearly whatever the object of our attention is. And with this, the potential for the arising of insight is born. There is, in fact, no insight without the cultivation and development of momentary concentration. And as we know, um, there are very specific practices that can be done to cultivate and to develop a deeply absorbed concentration. Practices to develop the unification of the mind that moves into particular states of concentration, jhana states. I think for us Westerners, the most familiar of these practices are the Brahma-vihara practices, the metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity practices. Developing concentration through the cultivation of jhana it certainly can be um, very helpful in developing a great strength and a great power of concentration and also in experiencing the depths of what we call the beautiful states. But it isn't at all absolutely necessary to cultivate a deeply absorbed concentration of the specific jhana states for insight, for liberating wisdom to arise. It's not at all necessary. Insight arises out of momentary concentration, or what is often called access concentration. There is no insight without this. The access concentration that arises and grows, for instance, as we attend to the impermanent, ephemeral nature of phenomena can tremendously strengthen concentration and can inspire the arising of insight. And it can also bring a feeling of being very open, very refreshed, 
the purity, the clarity, and the calm that comes with this factor of tranquility that I've been talking about earlier extends as concentration arises. And it pervades the heart and the mind with the arising and the development of concentration. From this perspective, the concentrated mind is incompatible with wanting anything outside of the immediacy of whatever is present in any given moment. There's no desire for. There's no wanting of anything different. In these moments, this desire wanting is suppressed. And there may be all kinds of things going on around you. People, sounds, smells, very possibly thoughts lightly or vaguely or weakly showing up in the breadth of, of consciousness. But there's no, no uh, attraction. There's certainly uh, some sense of the phenomenon. There's a quick, light knowing of it. But it's in the background. There's no attraction to it. There's a great strengthening of the mind, of the heart, when this occurs. The mind learns, we could say, to be just where it is. Pure, clear, calm. And at the same time, light and very nimble. When the enlightenment factor of concentration is present in us, there's a liveliness, there's a vitality. There's a quiet sense of power or strength and calmness that's often experienced as quite beautiful in itself, if it's in balance, if concentration is in balance with the other factors. And at times there can be a sense of a tremendous or maybe subtle physical release, possibly followed by a feeling of physical or mental comfort, which in turn um, is sometimes accompanied with the thoughts of, oh, I could just sit here forever. And in fact, at times we may sit quite comfortably for a number of hours without getting up. We may, during these times, experience and see pain, see thoughts just arising and dissolving. There may be a sense of healing, purification going on. Uh, Quite a number of years ago on a retreat that I sat, I was sitting near a man in his 70s who, at the end of the retreat, said that uh, a back pain that he'd had almost constantly for years had disappeared at one point during the retreat and hadn't come back. And he was wondering if it was um, gone forever. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. But again, as I mentioned in relation to the factor of tranquility, 
it's very easy to get attached, identified with the pleasant or beautiful or maybe fascinating um, manifestations of the concentrated mind. And maybe to think, this is really it. I've really done it now. You may have uh, had that thought at times. There's a subtle difference that's important to notice between interest and fascination. Interest is essential in our practice. Fascination is extra, we could say. Fascination is actually a contraction, and the me, the I, has arisen again. So notice that if it's to be noticed. With these experiences that come about with concentration, it's very important uh, to keep going. There's definitely more to come. It's important to be aware of even subtle attachment to this wonderful and powerful enlightenment factor. It's just a place on the map, a place that we can very easily find ourselves getting stuck in. It's so important to keep the heart and the mind open. Open, wide, and aware. To continue to let our practice deepen. When we begin to have access to deeper and more fully developed concentration, it's important to keep going and not try to hold on to or to get back to any of these experiences. Sustaining mindful attention is what allows insight to flourish, to deepen, and to mature. And eventually for equanimity, the seventh and last enlightenment factor, to arise. At this point, it can be helpful to reflect on concentration as an enlightenment factor itself giving it a careful and wise attention, giving attention to the particular manifestations in themselves, their conditioned states, their impermanent, they're as ephemeral as any other experience. They're not ours. Power, calm, ease, steadiness, non-distraction, the sweet taste of concentration is not mine. It's not me. It's not who I am. It's happening. That's for sure. It's happening. But any attempt to hold on to any of it is a tightening around it. And what happens then? it goes. And we're experiencing tightness, contraction of the mind, of the body.
What's essentially important when we do contract around experiences of concentration for whatever reason is to just simply notice this, this itself, without judgment, without evaluation, and just keep going. If we're fortunate enough to be able to stay open and to stay fully present as concentration arises and develops, the journey, of course, just continues on with this added ingredient of concentration, giving us the power to be able to see things even more clearly and in a more sustained way. Our consciousness at this point, as we continue traversing the map, includes all of the previous five factors of enlightenment that we've talked about. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, along with this factor of concentration, which is arising, actually, and deepening and strengthening as a result of the other factors being present in us. And so there's a great and yet easeful gathering of strength at this point in our practice. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai meditation master, talked about concentration as being like turning on the light or turning on the switch in order to see clearly, with wisdom being the resulting light. He spoke about concentration being the empty bowl, mindfulness, the food that fills it, making the meal of wisdom. So again, the ingredients for this recipe. In relationship to the particular enlightenment factor of concentration, the Buddha offers us a number of specific nutriments, particular ways that it can be nurtured. We're strongly encouraged to at least periodically connect and associate with people who have strong concentration and who live with some depth of renunciation. He, ex- he suggests that we stay away from people who are very busy with many, many affairs, who don't live with any degree of renunciation, whose hearts and minds are very often distracted. It's hard to stay away completely, but consider that in some way in your life. He tells us that restraining or exerting the mind as it's appropriate in particular occasions, on particular occasions, nurtures concentration. He tells tells us that to encourage the mind when it's listless, when it's lethargic, we should bring up or call up faith faith in the Buddha, faith in the teachings, faith in a particular teacher, faith in the practice, and that we should reflect on the urgency to practice. He tells us that by giving uh, careful and wise attention to the impermanent nature of things, this brings up urgency, which nurtures concentration. And he, of course, tells us 
to develop skills in concentrating. And that we have to give a wise and careful attention to keeping all of the factors of enlightenment in balance with each other. He speaks about concentration being nurtured by internal and external cleanliness with a beautiful metaphor. It's like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a purified lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support. I think I mentioned this a few talks ago. I like it, so I'm repeating it. The Buddha tells us to nurture concentration by looking with equanimity, staying in the middle with whatever occurs and suggest that we reflect on the various insights and liberations that occur through practice and that we might also reflect on the jhanas if this is an aspect of our own practice. The last nutriment that he suggests, as he does with each of the factors, is giving the factor of concentration the status of being very important, that we should resolve, lean, and incline the mind, incline the heart towards concentration, towards the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of this factor of enlightenment. It's important and very helpful to know when the enlightenment factor of concentration is in us and to know when it's absent, to know how it comes to arise and how the development of it comes about. So as we sit here in this place of seclusion, comfort, beauty, where our journey towards awakening is deeply respected and fully supported. Here we sit in this place where all the requisites needed are given. They're given in order for us to traverse the map that was offered with such great compassion by the Buddha directly out of his own experience. The Buddha tells us that along the way of our practice, the function of the enlightenment factors as they begin to develop and grow is as a preparation for the stages of insight. When these factors are actively eliminating the afflictive states of mind. When these factors are actively leading us clearly towards awakening. He spoke about the enlightenment factors at this stage of practice as being vast, exalted, measureless, without ill will. And he described the enlightenment factors as enabling a bhikkhu to abandon craving 
and to penetrate and sunder the mass of greed, hatred, and delusion not penetrated before. Those are the Buddha's words. When this happens, when one has broken through to the Dhamma, as it said, the enlightenment factors become one's absolute inalienable possessions, we could say. And the yogi who has acquired them has obtained the path. Obtained the path that, without fail, leads to liberation. To whatever degree at this point we have confidence in the Buddha, confidence in the Dharma, confidence in the Sangha, confidence in ourselves in relationship to walking this path, traversing this path, we've somehow stepped on the road, each of us. And we're going along, taking it step by step. Just as it began to unfold in a very direct way with six-year-old Siddhartha, that day at the spring plowing festival as he sat under the rose apple tree. It began at one point in its own way for each of us and will continue to unfold in its own way within each of us. The map is ours to learn and to traverse carefully, wisely, patiently with an open heart. I'd like to close the talk with um, a piece from the Dhammapada, or part of a piece from the Dhammapada, called The Mind. Just as an arrow maker straightens an arrow shaft, a discerning person straightens his or her mind, so fickle and unsteady, so difficult to guard and control. Like a fish out of water, cast on dry ground, throbs and quivers. This mind flops around. Hence, one should escape the realm of Mara. The mind is mercurial, ever swift, hard to restrain, alighting where it wishes. How wonderful to master this mind. A tamed mind brings happiness. Let the discerning person watch over her or his mind so difficult to perceive, so subtle, alighting wherever it wishes. A watchfully protected mind brings happiness. The mind travels far, moves alone, is formless, and dwells in the cave of the heart. Those who will subdue it are liberated from the bonds of Mara. Wisdom isn't perfected in one whose mind is not steadfast, in one who doesn't know the good teaching, and in one whose faith wavers. There's no fear for the wakeful one whose mind is not sodden by lust, whose thoughts are undisturbed by hatred, who has gone beyond virtue and harmful actions. 
knowing the body to be as fragile as a clay pot. Make the mind like a well-fortified city. Drive out Mara with the sword of insight. Then guard what you have won, remaining unattached. This body, alas, will soon lie on the ground, lifeless, abandoned, like a useless piece of rotten wood. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy, or a hater to a hater, an ill-directed mind elicits on oneself even greater harm. Neither mother, father, nor any other relative can do one greater good than one's own well-directed mind. Let's just sit together for a few moments. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.